Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod, I'm well, I've had a wet walk to the shed. That could have been worse, how far is it from the house to the shed? Uh, about 20 metres. It's not that bad. Metres. Not that bad. On grass, with crocs. Well, you've given me a little glimpse in your life I didn't know that I needed, really. You need one of those hats that are umbrellas. You know, just enough to cover your shoulder. Just You could hang it on the shed when you get there and hang it back in the house when you get back. Yeah, normally it's just a bit of a dash with my coffee so I don't get too much water in my coffee or something because I'm nipping between the two. So, uh, no, it's all right. I can't complain. Um, there are people in other parts of the UK that have had it a lot worse than I have. I'm complaining about a small amount of water and there's proper storms. So it is... Monday the 13th of November and it's episode 94. So, well, I think we're just going to apologise for the sound of keyboards and dogs in the background of the last episode. The keyboards became quite apparent to me. I don't know if that was mine or yours, but it could be either, I guess. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this as you've been talking and I have got one thing I want to follow up on. There's been a lot of podcasts talking about the new MacBook Pro, the 14-inch one, the base model, about how the 8 gigs of RAM is basically insufficient and how can they in this day, day and age continue to supply a professional computer with only 8 gigs of RAM. And I agree with that. I think it's appalling that they continue to do so. And apparently, they haven't updated the base spec, base spec of RAM in the MacBook Pro since 2016, maybe 2014. Yeah, I did hear, hear that as well. I think 8 gig is fine for the Air if you must, but the Pro should definitely be 16 as a minimum, especially when it now goes so so high. You know, like the gap between the the lowest and the highest is now ridiculous in the laptop. So I do think this should, it should go up as well. Weirdly enough, just before we recorded, my brother-in-law texts me, and I don't often hear from my brother-in-law, and he's like, what's the M1 MacBook Air's like? I'm thinking of getting one. Do I need 8 or 16 gig of RAM? So even he's, he's asking that question. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? And I think if you come from a Windows PC, it's going to confuse you why the base Mac has, has got so little RAM. And the other thing is, the ATP guy has made quite a good comment about this. I'm the first owner of this laptop and it's got 8 gigs of RAM and that might be just about fine now. But in three years' time when this is a second-hand laptop, chances are 8 gigs of RAM is not going to be fine now and that's a problem. Yeah, and I've I've been hit by this in the past. I've tried to scrimp and save a few quid up front and then comes a few years down the line, I'm like, why didn't I get a little bit more because I could have kept it a bit longer. So when I bought my current Mac, which I bought when the M2s came out, I bought an M1. One, I got way more than what I wanted. I, you know, I actually trumped for something much higher than I wanted because I had good finance on it. I had quite a bit of money off, so I've actually got thirty-two gig of RAM and an M1 Max, which I don't really need all of it. But I thought actually I'd probably like spend the money now, keep it a bit longer, um, and not do the upgrades. Whereas historically, if I'd gone a bit tighter on it, I'd probably be pushing the boundaries a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think it's it's not bad to over budget and a base spec of any laptop or actually any computer these days should be at least 16 gigs of RAM and at least 512 gigs of storage. I apologise for my slowness, but I worry our listeners might have heard my fan in the background because where I've got my headphones on, I didn't hear my my fan going, so I've just turned it off. So apologies if that's in there. No, I'm with you, 16 gig, especially for a pro device, come on. Because you also look at the new iMacs, they're quite pricey. (sighs) Should they have 16 gig in there as well? I don't know. I do wish Apple did better standard configurations because you get loads with low ram low low ssds in it and it's like well you should have a low one fine but equally you should have one that that's the one people should get you should have the the entry model and then the one that's the rough spec of you should have terabyte hard drive say 16 gig of ram and put it at a good price point 
Yeah, I agree. And I'm just, some of the early Black Friday slash Cyber Monday deals are starting to come on stream and I'm looking at some of the things for SSDs right now. You can get a Samsung 870 QV, which is a fast one, eight terabytes for 332 quid. And that only gets you four terabytes, I think, if that, or maybe even only one terabyte on a MacBook Pro. Yeah, that probably gets you nothing <laughs> on a MacBook Pro. So no, that sounds like an amazing deal. I remember when I bought two terabytes for my PlayStation, it was a few hundred pounds a couple of years ago. I'm glad I bought it. I went higher, so I didn't have to replace it. But it's amazing how much the, the rest of the world uh, offers much much more competitive pricing than Apple. Yeah, and, and a WD Black SN850X, which is the one terabyte thing I put in my PlayStation, amazingly fast SSD, faster than what you get on the on-chip in a Mac. And four terabytes of that is 300. So it's not, you know, we're not talking a million miles away from what's possible. So but having said all that, you've got to pay the Apple tax. You've got to get that. And I would say, don't buy an 8-gig laptop, buy a 16-gig one and put 512 in there. And that's all I had to say about it, really. It's been bothering me. <laughs> no, I think I agree. I think I agree with you. I do miss the days that you'll remember where in the old days you used to pop the battery out and you could slide a new hard drive in. It was really well designed. And on some obviously you could change the RAM as well or put in a wireless card. I do miss some of those days because it would be nice a few years from now to be able to upgrade it a little bit, especially with the world thinking about sustainability and recycling a lot more now than we ever have done. But yeah, our devices are less interchangeable than they ever have been. I remember one of the last models of G4, maybe even in the early Intel days of iMac, there was a door on the bottom that you could actually just shove memory up into the inside of it and upgrade your iMac. It's not that long ago. No, I think that did go into the Intel era. A nice little thing to do. And, uh, you know, we, we applaud the framework laptop all the time for being more sustainable. Much as these devices are lovely and beautifully made and don't flex and have all the good things now that we've come to expect from Mac laptops after so many years of so many bad things, I would like them to be a little more upgradable. Yeah, I completely agree. Because sometimes your needs change. And you know what? Maybe I would do want to put 64 gig of RAM in this thing. And Apple, yeah, you can charge me some extra money, but it feels like we're, we're going way away from there now, as we discussed last time, the chips are now more linked to the RAM than ever because you get certain configurations of RAM to the chip now. So it feels like those days are over. Definitely. Anyway, our unexpected follow-up that there was follow-up of, that's all I had to say. Should we go and do some news? Yeah, let's do the news. So first story, and this is just a, an awe, I hope he's okay kind of story as much as anything else. So one of the co-founders of Apple, Steve Wozniak, him, Steve Jobs, and I've forgotten the third guy's name, the, guy, the investor that was originally in at the start, were the three that actually properly incorporated Apple. Steve Wozniak was absolutely the technical genius that got Apple to where it was. Steve Jobs, brilliant at marketing, could sell, you know, sell snow at the Eskimos, I think is the is the way that they used to say that kind of stuff. But Steve Wozniak more or less designed the Apple II himself, was, was deeply involved with the designing the floppy disk drive controller for that, and a few other bits and pieces as well. So absolute un, unqualified genius, and is apparently one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. I think for Americans, he appeared on Dancing with the Stars, which is their variant of... Um, Strictly Come Dancing, but this story says that he's, he was admitted to me in Mexico City with symptoms of something like a stroke or maybe just a bit of brain fog or something like that. It's a bit vague. This story was on November the 9th, so it's a few days ago, but I haven't seen an update since, so I hope he's all right. He seems like a really nice guy. Yeah, no, I hope he's well. Obviously, yeah, without him, Apple wouldn't have got started. He was the technical authority in essence. Yeah, fingers crossed he's okay, but obviously he's not been at Apple for a long time, but it, He's obviously done well out of it and is notorious for it. So, yeah, I hope he's well. And the other co-founder, 
was I can remember this person's name, but it's Ronald Wayne was his name apparently, and he was only there for a short period of time. Yeah, he got out fast. He was a bit like the fifth member of the Beatles with the drummer before Ringo, I think. They absolutely made the wrong move. Yeah, 100%. Anyway, get well, Steve Wozniak. You, you're a bit he, of a he must be listening, right? Oh, absolutely. Why wouldn't he be? He's, he's a rich man. Didn't he? I'm sure he used to do a thing called Segway Polo as well. That was one of the things he was quite became notable for. I do remember him on a Segway. I don't know why that image yeah, has come to my memory. So yeah, wish him well. Fingers crossed he's all okay. Yeah. Moving on, there was a story earlier in the week from 9to5Mac and others that some of the new M3 MacBook Pros that we've talked ourselves to death with and the new iMacs were shipping with Ventura, which is slightly surprising. And then when you were going to install Sonoma on them to bring them up to date to bring your updates over, this was failing. So we skipped over a story while while you were off in Cyprus about how you could update, potentially update iPhones while they were in the box so there'd be sensors the phone would be near enough the surface of the thing you could put them all in like a, a pizza oven type thing is the way it was described seven or eight phones in a box and upgrade them it seems to me they should maybe be thinking about something similar for the laptops yeah I was surprised by this because I, I missed it but B I was amazed that these devices didn't need Sonoma as a minimum because normally Apple you know have certain OS's that are minimum for, for products they do it with iOS they do it with Macs and I'm amazed it wasn't Sonoma and it felt like Sonoma needed to come out first and it would support support these new devices so I'm surprised that it even is running I'm going to say Ventura I can't remember the name now the, the previous OS but it just seemed bonkers to me that this is a thing but have these things been sat around on the shelf for a while or something I mean it must have been really late with some of the M2 stuff for these then to be sat around for so long with with an old OS on it that was released back in the summer, so all a bit bizarre. Yeah, it is. It doesn't it doesn't chime quite right, as you say. And let's face it, that event caught us by surprise. Maybe it caught the supply chain by surprise as well. Yeah, all very bizarre. Or maybe it didn't catch them by surprise, and they're surprised that the uh, devices didn't get released uh, earlier. So yeah, bizarre. Yeah, a bit of a strange one. Anyway, the the silver lining on this is that the latest update to macOS, Sonoma 14.1.1, fixes the problem. So that's good, but really they shouldn't be shipping devices in these, this state, and that's twice now. The iPhones had the same pro- had a similar problem, and now we've got the Macs as well. And now they all run more or less the same sort of kernel and, and, and means of updating them. Macs come with IPSWs, which is the acronym that iOS and iPadOS devices used to come with. Some iPhone software something was sort of the the, the base kernel of uh, of them all. It's not a surprise, really, that they're going to be subject to the same sort of problems. Yeah, very bizarre. Like I say, it's just bizarre that Apple shipped this. But hey, I hope they've sorted it. Apple, they haven't had a good year for software updates, have they? They've had a few drop balls because we had a lot of software updates when the new iPhones came out you know 17.0.1.2.3 so yeah hopefully they're doing some work to improve the situation yeah I mean you and I well you particularly were bemoaning about the fact friends and relatives were saying to you why am I having to update my phone so often it's it's slowed down a little bit now but that's not an ideal state of affairs it's especially when there's no tangible reason. And it was the same kind of going to iOS 17. It was like, you should update your phone, but there's not much in there. So maybe the journal app will get them when at 17.2 comes out and everybody will want to upgrade for that. Maybe. Anyway, moving on, another software update news. And this is a, a near miss that, that this we're reporting on more than anything else. So this was a story originally in 9to5Mac. The iOS 17.2 had hints of Apple moving to letting users sideload stuff from outside of the App Store. So they get very excited with this. There's a whole bunch of reporting on, and we talked about it last week. 
about there were no signs of Apple actually presenting how they were going to allow this to happen to be in accordance with the European Union's Digital Markets Act. It's since turned out that Apple actually got in touch with 9to5Mac and said, no, 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 this is an MDM, Mobile Device Management API, nothing to do with sideloading. So that's slightly disappointing, or is this just Apple being trying to be mysterious and hide what is actually going on? I think this is an odd one. I think if Apple were trying to hide it, they'd probably just said nothing. But the fact they've actually contacted, maybe it is just MDM and it is nothing to get excited about. I don't know. It feels a bit feels a bit odd, but surely Apple have got to do something. And I think we were expecting something back at WWDC, so it's odd that they're waiting to now. So, yeah, all a bit odd. Yeah, I guess Apple will push this and, and kick the can down the road as much as they can. You know, they're going to try it. They'll take fines. We've already seen this with some of the other app stores that we've talked about over the years or so. So this sort of maybe fits in there. Maybe we won't see anything until iOS 18. We might discuss that a little bit later on in the show, actually. But I just thought it was interesting. This was the first hint of something that we'd been looking for, and then we've had it dashed. Yeah, or maybe Apple have found some loophole in the wording. or You know, they could be employing lawyers, aren't they, to uh, try and get them out of doing these changes because they don't want to do it. Yeah. Anyway, in related news, Google have argued that iMessage should be regulated by the EU's Digital Markets Act. You and I were both surprised that they'd got out of this before, that iMessage didn't seem to be subject to it, whereas Google's messaging services did, and Facebook and WhatsApp and others were all subject to the Digital Markets Act. But obviously Google are a bit irked by this, and they're saying, if, you know, if we're in for it, Apple should be in for it too. And I can't really blame them. Yeah, I'm with you here, I think. Yeah, messages is massive. I use it all the time. It's the only way you can get hold of me, really, by text. So I'm surprised it's not in here. Um, it is interesting. Look at the article though that we've got linked because under browser it just lists Chrome and Safari. Edge doesn't even get a mention because I'm assuming the user base is so low um, that it's not there. But looking at that graph though, like Microsoft are barely on there because they they come under the operating system, and then they come under social network because they own LinkedIn. But it's amazing how they're fairly irrelevant in this whole screen. Bing's not under search either. So it's, it's yeah, super interesting. It is a bit odd. And just to be very clear, yeah, the EU want to include uh, any devices where you have more than 45 million monthly active EU users and more than 10,000 yearly active business users. I got to think a lot of Azure services have more than 10,000 yearly active business users with a business turnover of at least 7.5 billion euros or market cap of 75 billion euros. I'm surprised there's not more Microsoft stuff on this slide. Yeah, it just feels very Microsoft light, doesn't it? It's bizarre. Maybe they don't want to look at that too much because despite best efforts in parts of the EU, I'm thinking of Germany particularly, to sort of push forward with Linux as desktops for, for governmental organizations, the reality is, is Microsoft's operating systems dominate. They do, they do. Yeah, no, it's, it's odd. Um, yeah, Microsoft's done a blinding job, I think, of skirting under the radar. As I look at this, the services for gatekeeper designations, and you're quite right to pull Microsoft out of this, under video sharing, I've, it's deeply disturbing. There's only one, and that one is YouTube. Talk about a dominant market. Yeah, no Discord on here. I mean, that could obviously go under social network or a video, and then there's no... Vimeo or anything like that because YouTube does have it sewn up to be fair. 
It totally does. And, you know, we talked last week about how they're getting ever more pushy about ads and things on YouTube and, you know, blocking ad blockers and then blocking the blockers of ad blockers. And, it, you know, they, they're absolutely d- desperate to get that. We've got another story about Google later on, actually, about what goes on with that. But the other thing then is Google Maps. If you look at all the Google services that are on this, I'm not surprised they're pushing back a bit. They don't want to be seen as a monopoly in this space. But, you know, Amazon's barely on here. Microsoft's barely on here. The App Store is definitely on here, and that's not a surprise. But I'm kind of with Google. Mess- iMessage should be in the messaging box. Apple Maps isn't on here either. It's a bit, it's a bit odd. You've got some, but not others, in very similar markets. Yeah, I find it a bit. Uh, I don't know. I think this isn't a good. What am I saying? It's not a complete list of all of them. I think. Yeah, I'd go with that. But it's worth keeping an eye on because it's not like many of these services are going to get smaller overnight, is it? They're they're only going to grow. TikTok is not a platform that's going away anytime soon. No, when when I first looked at this, I did look at who are ByteDance? And in my head thought, oh yeah, they're TikTok. Yeah, there's a Chinese company that owns a very large social network. Yeah, a social network for all the kids. All the cool kids, yeah. So, what's our next story? Next story is, oh, the UK has just laid out new rules for the internet. So, I did have a read through this, and I'm confused, but I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm waiting for this to go to the ministers here in the UK, because I'm sure they're going to be confused. Um, What did you make of it? Well, we've talked about this sort of in passing up to now. This, so this was in, in the King's speech last time. This became law. We know it was very bad law bits up to this point. The point of this is it puts a duty of care on tech firms to have a responsibility for the safety of their users. So tech firms up till now have just been gatekeepers. If you're an internet service provider in the UK, then traffic passes through your network, but you bear no responsibility for what that traffic is. And this is in similar to what we've just been talking about with the EU. If you're Facebook, then you have a duty of care to make sure child and sexual abuse material doesn't appear on your platform. If you are X, you have the same thing. And what you need as part of that are robust controls that if somebody complains that they're being victimized, revenge porned, you know, whatever the various things that people can be attacked using social networks are on here, then you need to have a a responsibility to you, your users, to be able to police it, investigate it, and deal with it. And I think, in as much as anything, that's fine. You should be able to get in touch with somebody at a company to deal with it. I'm not sure X slash Twitter have that anymore, because Elon fired them all. Yeah, so I read this, and I I thought it sounded good. The first statement is, right, you know, tech firms need to take ownership for illegal content on their platforms. Brilliant. But you're right. And am I right in thinking, though, that Elon has said that you know, if this law came to pass, then Twitter, now X, might leave the UK because it won't be able to do it. And it's like, well, that says a lot about your service, doesn't it? Um, I don't disagree with this. I think, yeah, tech firms should be taking ownership for the platforms they are providing because they're the only people that can remove the content. So I'm, I'm, I'm on board with this, but I guess there are different laws in different countries and it, it is more nuanced, I think, once you start digging into it. Totally is. And the nuance is, if you're WhatsApp or iMessage and you encrypt all the messages and you don't hold the keys to that, you don't know what's on your platform. And that's part of the thing. I think having the ability to investigate it in some way is good, but I wouldn't want to break encryption to do that for the reasons we've discussed before. Yes, this one's tricky, isn't it? Because that's where you need that end-to-end encryption. So for me, a, a direct messaging platform is very different to a social media that's 
published on the open internet where you can get get a link to it, say a Facebook post, a LinkedIn post, whatever it may be. I think that's very different than an end-to-end encrypted messaging platform. I think if something's publicly available and anybody could stumble across it, that is different to somebody communicating between two people on end-to-end encryption. And I think there does need to be a line between the two here. Mm. It's complicated, and it's complicated for people that own platforms, isn't it? Because the laws are very slightly different in, in different countries. And do it, you know, we talked about how Spain was sort of pushing ahead with something like this. The UK is obviously pushing ahead with something like this. America has its own variant of this. I think it's called the Online Safety Act. Sorry, the Digital Services Act. So there's a lot of, re- of, of regulation around the world, and it's going to be very difficult for some providers to fit in with this. The UK walked back from saying, right, you've got to pass your software with patches onto us or being give us the keys to your two-factor authentication. But maybe another government won't. And then some companies in the same way Elon did will just pull out. It's a very difficult thing to chase. And I understand it's a thorny issue, but I'm not sure. I like the spirit of the law. I think the execution is poor. And what you said there about ministers grappling with this and the courts grappling with this is going to be really important in years to come. Yeah, and you can see it though, can't you? You can see somebody going, well, yeah, why wouldn't we get uh, platforms to stop illegal content going on it? You know, like like say we use LinkedIn as an, as an example, it makes perfect sense. But then when you start thinking about an end-to-end encrypted messaging platform, and Twitter is both of these platforms, then it poses very different questions, doesn't it? How, how do you even go about doing that? Yeah, and it's, it's a double-edged sword for lawmakers as well. I mean, for those that aren't aware, here in the UK, we have an investigation into the COVID uh, pandemic and, and government's handling of that at the time. And a lot of that rests on the man who was Prime Minister at the time's WhatsApp messages. He's claiming the phone he had at that time has been replaced and he's forgotten the password to his WhatsApps and, and they're just gone. Anybody that has ever had anything to do with any of these messaging services knows you can just put your password in again and you can recover all those messages. So th- that's blatant lies on the, on, the, on the face of a politician. But at the same time, I think there's enough ignorance and enough poorly defined range within what you know a, a, an inquiry can call upon or what, what a politician's expected to remember in terms of passwords or something like that, that you will get away with that kind of behaviour. Yeah, I don't know if you watched Have I Got News For You. Um, it's a show here in the UK. It's usually a comedy panel. And it's usually about what's happened the week in politics, in essence. And there was a clip of a minister, you know, in front of a panel hearing. And they were ask, asking this minister, so why is it on the, I'm going to make the dates up, on the 25th of March, all your, you deleted all your, you know, your conversation history. And the, and the minister just goes, I can't remember. And it was just like, you know exactly what you were doing. You went in and deleted all the evidence that you held on your device. And that was your, you know, your get out of jail card. So, it, yeah, not good. Shall we move on? Because this just winds me up. It's getting, it's getting deeply political. And again, today there's been a major cabinet reshuffle in the UK as well. And that is just mind blowing. But that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, weirdly, our prime minister from three prime ministers ago has come back, which is strange. But he's not a prime minister. He's now got a different job. Yeah, he's got a different job and he's sitting as a minister, which has got precedent, but he can't be questioned in the House of Parliament because he's a lord and lords can't be questioned in the House of Parliament. So how does that work? Oh, it's just, it just sounds like it's just such a stupid rule, doesn't it? It's bizarre. Anyway, let's. I, I'll get very political in a minute, so we should move on. Uh, in grim news, um, a robot has mistaked a man for a box of peppers and killed him, and this is in Korea. It's not good, is it? Yeah, so 
apparently the man was checking to see the sensor electronics were working properly. The, report, the robot took hold of him using its arm and tongs, crushing his face and chest. Officials believe the system misidentified the man as a box of food and tried to lift him up. Oof. This so is this not is, good. This is our second robot against human story in the last few weeks. We had the robot taxi in San Francisco that parked on the lady and had to be winched off her. And now we've got a robot actually killing a human being. And I guess it, must, it will have happened before. But this is, you know, this is the rise of the machines by accident, isn't it? Yeah, we need to go back to iRobot and the there were three laws of a robot. I can't think what they were now, but fantastic. I keep meaning to go and read that book, actually, that it's based on. Asimov. It's along the lines of uh, a robot may not harm a human being either in action or by omission of action is one of them. Um, but I think that's a really difficult thing to program in if you're a car cruising around, you know? Uh, I, I agree with you, but it does feel like we need something here. Like we need rules for AI. Do we not need rules for autonomous things? We do. I was in Heathrow Airport uh, on Thursday uh, after waiting far too long for my baggage to arrive from uh, from the plane. Uh, over an hour, Heathrow Airport, take that. And I watched some of these autonomous cleaning things just wandering around the, the floor of Heathrow Airport cleaning things. And I was sat off to one side because I was at the baggage reclaim for more than an hour, like I say. And I sat there thinking, is this the best place to sit? Well, because it's going to come and brush you away. What, well, it might brush me away, but, you know, if it's going to claw a man who, because it thought it was peppers, would it think I was a bag? What would it do? Yeah, I've seen one of those at the train station. My kids saw it, and my kids are like, what is that? That's cool. And it's just this little robot, just, you know, mopping the floor, in essence, and hoovering, I guess. It was quite cool. Yeah, I mean, a, ro- a, a, ro- a hoover's not going to do this. We've got robot hoovers in our homes now. But, uh, yeah, scary. Uh, definitely not good but i do think we need some governance to stop this in the future yeah we're not making the best law around ai as far as i can see although i'm very glad and in related news that the screen actors uh, have gone back to work sag aftra thing that the screenwriters set, uh, settled their dispute with hollywood and now uh, the actors have as well so there's a chance of us getting content again after our sort of six month gap yeah it did feel there's been a bit of a drought definitely the next story i put in specially for you yeah, so I did see this one. So iOS 17.1.1, which I think has gone out to everybody, basically makes it so that if you've got an iPhone 15 and a BMW, the BMW won't fry your NFC chip in your phone. Now, I do have a BMW. I do have an iPhone 15. I never suffered from this problem, and I do use my phone to start my car, so you have to put it on the charge pad to start it. But wow, what a mess this is. I also get why it's the Toyota Supra as well, because if I remember correctly, the Toyota Supra is basically a BMW. Z4. Z, Z4, thank you. I, I was just struggling. I knew it was a 4 and I couldn't remember the, the letter that uh, it goes before it. So Z4. So that kind of makes sense. Um, but again, crazy that we need an update shipped out to everybody to really address this one large issue. So I'm glad they fixed it, but weird how it got in there. This is unusual. I'm going to read Apple's entire patch notes for this fix which I would never normally try and do because well, not that they're always the most detailed things in the world, but this is the whole thing. This update provides bug fixes for your iPhone, including in rare circumstances, Apple Pay and other NFC features may become unavailable on iPhone 15 models after wireless charging in certain cars. Weather lock screen widget may not correctly display snow. That's it. Do you know what the snow one was? It was a file icon, right? Yeah, it was like a missing graphic, I think. And so it's two very strange bugs how they got through all of Apple's Q&A and that. Yeah, it's it's not very good, really, that you've got to put, put a bug for these things, one of which is really important and one of which really isn't. But they're both quite 
unique ones, I guess, in that most people probably were completely unaware of them and don't have the right cars to have these problems. But interestingly, everybody got that update. Very much so. Moving on, uh, a little story I quite like to keep my eye on from time to time. So for those of us with Macs and who have Xcode developer tools, it's really easy to simulate, emulate an iPhone. You can just fire up in your developer tools, it gives you that, and you can install and build and run your app. That's great. But for those on Intel machines or other architectures, there isn't a way to emulate, simulate a phone. You basically get a Mac or you're out of luck. A few years ago, or maybe right at the beginning of this podcast, we reported that somebody had managed to get an emulator running for iOS 1. Would have been called iPhone OS at that point. 1, which was amazing. But now they've managed to get the QMU emulator, which is actually the emulator I run on my home server for virtualizing all sorts of virtual machines and containers and all that kind of stuff. So it's a well-understood emulator. If you use UTM on a Mac, it's based on QMU. And in the alt store, UTM on, on the iPad is also based on QMU. So it's a really popular emulator hypervisor um i just think this is great that somebody is persisting away and they managed to get ios 2.1 running on the emulator so who knows maybe this time in two years we'll have ios 3 i do think this is cool because it is nice to go back and remember how things were and to see how far some things have come and how far maybe they haven't come because as you go and look at an iphone from 15 versions ago it's actually not wildly different than what it is today. I know a lot's happened underneath and we've had new tech, but you can see that they are directly related, if that makes sense. You know, they got so much right on that first iPhone. I love going back and looking at some of this stuff. Yeah, they really did. And I like in the picture, they're showing Super Monkey Ball as the, as the example of a game that ran really well on that one. I loved Super Monkey Ball. It was great. That was quite a game at the time, though, wasn't it? It was quite a game. And the point was it showed the iPhone off to its best with the, the ability to tilt. And the more you tilt it, tilted it, the faster the ball with a little monkey and it would roll. And and the accelerometer, accelerometer and everything working in perfect harmony. And as a demonstration of what the iPhone was capable of for a, whatever it was when it came out, 450 quid, I think it was. It was an amazing, amazing thing to do. And it ran on the, the oh gosh, the iPod Touch as well. So Yeah, of course it is. Again, iPod Touch, forgot about that. Yep. So interesting, glad it's going, and well done to these dedicated developers who are sort of recording bits of history that, you know, all the software that we'll never be able to run on current generation iPhones will run on something like this. Should we move on then to Google now? Yeah, this is just a sneaky one, really, and it's not something I'd thought about. If you visit maps.google.com on your browser, it will immediately redirect you to google.com slash maps. And it's one of those things you don't think about. We're so used to one website redirecting us to another that we, we don't give it an awful lot of thought. But this uh, developer who I think used to work for Google, because of this redirect, the location permission that you grant to Google Maps also automatically becomes available to Google Search, making your search queries more valuable to advertisers. Of course it does, because you've already grant, you know, granted that permission to Google Search, so you do it. They're changing that by redirecting you there, and then they're able to include your maps with your search data and, and bubble you that little bit better. And one of the first comments from this is, as an ex-Google privacy person, that makes us very happy, happy that people who aren't under NDAs talk about this. You're only the second person to mention this. I think this is fascinating, really. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And I must confess, I haven't used Google Maps in a long time, but... You, this is Google at, at their cleverest and their worst in equal measure. It's a clever solution, isn't it? Oh, look, if we do this, we can have all that lovely location data and we're technically doing it quite innocently. So if you can see why they're doing it. I don't like it. I don't use, I don't think I really use any Google things. Occasionally I go to YouTube, 
but I don't even have an account. I just browse for a couple of videos every now and again. Interesting, I'm, I'm just looking at my house on Google Maps, which I haven't looked into for a long time. It's got old satellite imagery. Interestingly, Apple Maps has got newer satellite imagery because I can see my old car there. I can see the builders at my house. They've not been at my house for a couple of years. I do like the way, though, that on top of my house, it's put the house number, which is kind of cool, whereas Apple Maps doesn't do that. So interesting, though, that their data is older than Apple's because normally you'd expect it to be the other way around. I think it flip-flops. Apple falls behind and then they do their updates and then Google falls behind and then they do their updates and that's just kind of the way it goes. Google have the advantage of getting better crowdsourcing, I think, than Apple as well, although Apple's got better at that too. But the the ability for people to report on places and things in a particular area, when you do search on Google Maps, you do get a little bit more help from people around you for that kind of stuff. And I would say some of the tools built into Google Maps are better. I'm planning a trip uh, for business I put in where I live to where I want to go, and Google offered me driving, walking, bicycling, public transport, air travel, and a mix thereof to give you the most efficient thing. Whereas Google Ma- Apple Maps will only give you driving, walking, public transport, and won't offer you flights as sort of default within that. And Google, because they're Google, will also give you rough ideas of prices for those things too. So you can understand why, if you're very much in the Google ego- ecosystem or haven't thought about this very much, you default to their... Yeah, no, that does make sense. One thing I don't think I did mention when I went to Cyprus is, I was like, oh, I wonder how long it's going to take me to walk from the hotel to somewhere. There are no walking directions in Cyprus in Apple Maps. And I was like, oh, I feel completely lost now because my kids were asking, how long is that, Dad? And I was like, I don't know, half an hour? But, you know, I went back to old school guessing, whereas normally I'd just go, well, Apple Maps says half an hour. So it was weird that, yeah, they didn't have it. Uh, when I visited Cyprus in, I want to say 2014, it was thereabouts, uh, no routing worked at all in Google or Apple Maps. And I don't know if it's proximity to other things or because there's technically still a bit of a war going on between Turkey and Greece over the sort of the middle of Cyprus. But I suspect that there's something uh, related to that happening. And there's lots of military bases in Cyprus as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be be surprised, but i just so used to having it, I guess, everywhere I go. I, I've, I was a little bit lost without it. Yep, fair. Have we got any other news stories? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's been quite a busy old week for what, what is normally Techtober, as it's been called historically. It's been quite a quiet sort of October, I think, on the whole. I, th- I think Apple have sucked the, the air out of the room, really, haven't they? Yeah, I think so. But yeah, and they haven't had loads of updates, really, have they? It's just been a, a I'm quite year. I've been looking at the 17.1 beta and the journaling app, and it seems quite basic, and lots of people can put, so should I say 17.2 beta? Sorry. Yes. How basic it seems with the fact that there is no Mac client, and that'll be a non-starter for some. There is no iPad client, and that'll be a non-starter for some. But I'm interested to see it come along just to try it. Yeah, so I do have the beta on my phone. I looked at the journal app and then closed it. I would have normally gone, oh, I'm sure the journal app will come quite quickly to the other platforms. But seeing as Apple Music Classical has gone nowhere, I don't know what's going on over at Apple at the moment. They can't seem to do two things at once. I find it very bizarre because I'm sure if this was a, a one developer shop, that they would have you know, got more apps out the door at this point. So I think it's very bizarre Apple's ploy at the moment not to have these apps everywhere. So it's, it's very strange. I am going to put in a last minute story because I just happened to look at the news app and I'm going to put it in now. And it's just a little bit of Google Apple news about how... We have a figure now for how much Google pays Apple for embedding search apps in Safari. And Google gives Apple a 36% cut of all search ad revenue that comes from Safari. 
that's a big number, isn't it? That's a very big number indeed. Incredible. Yeah, Google are, and Apple aren't going to come out of this antitrust tile looking very good, I don't think. No, I like that the title of this article is A Google Witness Let's Slip Just How Much It Pays Apple for Safari Search. Yeah, shocking. Anyway, a nice little one to finish on. Should we move on and do some media? Let's do media. And you've put in For All Mankind. I have, and it's a an apology, really. I haven't had a chance to watch the first episode of For All Mankind, which I think debuted on Thursday. It's a show that I think is one of the best on Apple TV+. I'm desperate to watch it. Having waited this long, I now may wait till next Thursday and binge the first two rather than the first one. But it's out. I watched the trailers before it came. I think it's great. I can't wait to watch it. I feel sad with myself for not having watched it and wondered if you had. No, I haven't seen it either. I did see it drop. And there's two, well, a couple of reasons why I've not seen it. And I'll go into those in a sec. But I'm like you, I think. I want to see it, but I haven't. But I, I also don't want to just watch it casually I actually want to sit and watch it properly and I think I've been saving it for that I'm still mixed on whether I like the ability to binge things or not I kind of like with my children oh look Bake Off's on tomorrow night and we sit and watch that as a family and then we wait till next week and we can't just roll straight into the next one but then sometimes I'm like I do want to binge something so I'm confused on what what my what I prefer, if you know what I mean. I think, to a degree, I quite like it when there's one a week and it stretches it out, and I think I savour it more. Based on that follow-up, I have just finished The Morning Show Series 3. Fantastic. In a word, I thought it was brilliant. They had a cyber hack in there. They had somebody trying to do a buyout. It had John Hamm, who was in Mad Men. Loved it. Right at my my street thought it was fantastic so generally enjoyed it It was 10 10 episodes and i thought they they kept it quite well they brought it all together just thoroughly enjoyed it It was right my street and billy crudup and i never know how you pronounce his last name but he he is awesome in it he plays this sleazy ceo and i think he's very good i just loved all of it and I, it was definitely the best best one yet and i think they've tackled some good things in it you know we had oh what's the character from the office called and who plays grew in Steve Carell. Steve Carell in the first one where, you know, he was a very inappropriate person to work with, um, hitting on all the ladies. We then had COVID in the second one. We've had a buyout and, you know, and a potential acquisition and a cyber hack in the third series. I think, to be fair, they, they've made a TV show out of things that are happening in real life. And I just thought it was, was really well done. Generally enjoyed it. Great acting and the picture quality and it, the effects. Everything just looked great. So generally enjoyed it and really wanted to watch the final the finale which i managed just to fit in before we started today fair enough it lost me in season one and i've never had any desire to go back yeah you won't you won't go back now i don't think because you're 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 burned and there's too much new stuff coming out but i would recommend it and i'm glad i've watched it i think for me series three was definitely worth the wait for me and possibly could stand up on its own i think to be fair but i'm really good they even had the oh the riots in washington as as a side storyline in there and stuff so they they like I say, it was really well interspersed with real life and this fictitious world we're, li- we're, we're living in in the show. And they launched their own, the, the TV network's called UBA, and they launched UBA Plus, their own streaming service and things. And I just thought it was so self-aware of the world. I just thought it was really well done. So big thumbs up for me. Um, Fair enough. Well, I was just going to say, it brings me on to the next thing, the other reason why I've not watched For Mankind, because I did watch 007 Road to a Million. Have you heard of this? No, I have heard of this, and my, the reserved sound is going to come along in my voice. I was quite excited because it's Brian Cox, 
And I thought, I might give this a go. I like 007. I like Brian Cox. What could go wrong? And then I read a review in The Guardian that said, if you watch this, you won't like Brian Cox anymore. And you might not like Succession. So I was like, ooh, not sure. So I was aware The Guardian had panned it. But you know what? I kind of went into this not really knowing anything. I saw it pop up and I saw like a little flash in in the app showing Brian Cox and the bit of 007 music. I thought, oh, I'm just going to click on it and try it. Whilst not the best TV I've ever seen, equally thoroughly enjoyed it and binge watched all 10 episodes or eight episodes over the weekend my kids even watched a bit of it with me it was i thought it was really good do you want to know the premise do you want me to say any more about it or or not but yeah why not our listeners may be interested so brian cox kind of plays the controller or, or something along those lines he's in a control room he's got a bunch of tvs in front of him and then you've got pairs of people a little bit like race across the world they've got a challenge to do in essence and so they they start off up in Scotland. They get out off. They get off a, off a regular bus in Scotland, and then there's a ringing phone. They pick up the phone. They get told, "Right, you got to go over that mountain, and you got to find something that stands out in a lake or something." And that's it. And off they go, and they just have to go and do these sorts of challenges. And then when they get get there, they, the challenge is basically get a box. You open the box, and in there there's a question. You have to pick A, B, or C. You pull the flare, and it, if it's green, you got it right. If it's red, you got it wrong. I just thought it was quite well done. The only bit that marginally annoyed me is you didn't get to see some of the the pairings very much because either they didn't last very long but they didn't treat all pairings equally if that makes sense so they showed you a lot more of others and they got to different countries and you didn't see any of that sort of travel if that makes sense you know you, you kind of had level one there in scotland then level two i can't remember where we were, say italy and they just magically ended up in italy i don't know what happened in the middle if that makes sense but i generally quite enjoyed it and easy watching tv sold but didn't sound quite as bad as the Guardian made it to be and it did look like Brian Cox quite enjoyed himself in it so if I was you and you had to spare half an hour I'd watch a little bit of it and make, make up your own mind but it was just nice to watch something with my kids a little bit as well so. I, I'm a sheep I'm almost entirely led in my media choices by others but then you know I was talked around to succession and others so maybe I'd want to be a little more a little bit more open to these things yeah like i say it's not the world's best telly but equally it's not the world's worst telly I, for a little quiz show my kids I can't explain it. They love a quiz show. Even though they probably don't know half the questions or the answers, they love a quiz. And so for them, it was a little bit of their street. It was a bit of action and a bit of a quiz. Taskmaster, like. Yeah, exactly. They're mad on Taskmaster. So, yeah. So it was good. Fair enough. Sticking with the spy theme, uh, a trailer came out last week or the, the beginning of this week for Slow Horses Season 3. I'm very excited for Slow Horses Season 3 and I'm sure you are too. Yeah, I've read the books. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. It... I, Again, just looks so good and so well filmed, put together. It's carried on in the same vein. All the actors are back. It looks fantastic. As I was looking for the link for YouTube, I just did a general DuckDuckGo search first and it came up and the first three or four articles were the biggest underrated show on Apple TV+, Plus, the show everybody should be talking about. We can't believe not more people are into slow horses and I can only agree with that, really. Yeah, definitely. When I went to see Mick Heron at the Literature Show, some people asked, are you going to be making your shows more widely available because they're on Apple and I don't know how to get Apple? And there does seem to be that as a barrier. A friend popped around at the weekend, they're like, oh, you're watching someone on Apple TV? I don't know how to get that. And it was just like, oh, how do, you know, Apple's got some work to do there, I think, to get people onto it because not many people have Apple TV boxes and they possibly don't know about AirPlay and all of those things, so... But the service also works on your LG Smart TV service. It works on a Roku box. It works on an Amazon Fire Stick. It works on the Google thing. You just got to look for it. 
Yeah, maybe Apple were too slow to do all of that, and it just takes time. Yeah, there is an association with Apple hardware. And they could have done a little more with the trial, I think, that we got them for buying new phones and things like that. And they actually kept us free for quite a while. So maybe if somebody buys an Apple Watch these days or buys a new iPad or whatever, they could make that a bit more obvious to people too, I think. Yeah, or just explain to people, you maybe they need a campaign. Everybody's seen the iPhone campaigns. Why not have an Apple TV one? You can get it on literally anything. Give it a go. How do I get Apple TV Plus? It was funny, when I was I was away this weekend, and a few people had said, oh, what's this Tad Lasso thing I've heard so much about? And I had my Roku box with me. So I actually fired up the first two episodes of Ted Lasso. And everybody, there were about 15 people in the room, were immediately addicted. How could you not be? It's fantastic. Yeah, it's great. So I think I might have sold a few Apple TV Plus subscriptions there. You should be on commission. Slow Horses, though, looks awesome and comes out soon. Winner. It does. Speaking of awesome things, the trailer dropped for Inside Out 2. Inside Out is a terrific film. It's one of my favourite Pixar films in the last few years. I'm super excited that there's going to be a sequel. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Do you like it, though, because you've had two girls and you can see inside their head in this one? No, it reminds me of a comic called The Numbskulls that was in the Beano or the Dandy, I forget which one, and it was that... I think it's called a homunculus, isn't it? Where you've got a little character that controls you inside your brain. I think I think that's what that is. And I always liked that sort of tip, the idea that anger was a character, you know, frustration was a character, joy was a character. And Inside Out did it so well and with the usual heart that, that, that Pixar bring to these kinds of things. So that's what I liked. The kids liked it too because it's a really good cartoon apart from anything else, as with many Pixar things, on whatever level you want to view it at. So... Yes, but that was incidental to all the other reasons that I liked it. My kids loved it too. I didn't think we were getting Inside Out 2 because I thought Elemental was done by the same team and we just had Elemental. But great, this is coming after this show. I'm going to go and show the trailer to my kids because I want to take them to cinema to go see this. We often go to the cinema for a Pixar release because I insist upon it. A homunculus is a little person, a representation of a small human being originally depicted as small statues made out of clay. So I'm not a million miles away, but I'll, no, I'll, try, and find, yeah, I'll try and find the link to the comic at some point as well. But yeah, I'm excited for Inside Out too. Stargate. Stargate. So I can't remember what the reason was, but I actually went back and watched the film Stargate a couple of weeks ago, and I meant to talk about that. It's by the same guy that did Independence Day. I want to say Jerry Bruckheimer. I think it was Jeremy, Jerry Bruckheimer. The premise was really good. You find the thing in the Egyptian desert. They bring it up. They figure it. They bring in a, a guy who immediately gets it to work. They visit another planet. And they take the whole Egyptian sort of mythology thing, and they run with it. And obviously, it became a TV show and all that stuff. But just taking the film out of sequence and just viewing it as a film, it's just a lot of fun. You know, there's some characters in there that you think, oh my god, I recognise that actor. It's always good to see Kurt Russell in anything. I think he's. He's fantastic to watch. He's got a real presence about him. And he looks good in this film too. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed watching Stargate again. There is a, here is a woman, she's useless until the male character comes along and gives it that. But I think you could knock a lot of early, sort of late 80s, early 90s action films for that kind of thing. And I, as a bit of harmless fluff, thoroughly enjoyed Stargate. I've not watched that film for a long time, probably since university. So maybe it's one I need to go back and see. Definitely. And the, the version I have is the director's cut, which if you've have the earlier ones, it's a four to three um, a ratio, so it doesn't look good on widescreen TVs. But with the director's cut, they expand it out. It's widescreen, the quality is very good, and they put in a few bits and pieces of scenes that weren't in the theatrical cut that I remember watching. So I just thoroughly enjoyed watching again. It was great. And here in the UK, it looks like it's on Prime Video to watch if you've got it. There you go. So that was all I had, really. 
Anything else in the media? No, let's move on to games. Games. And we've got a bit to talk about in games this week, which is good because we're going to be really rigorous and try and keep the show a bit shorter. So very quickly, you bought a Steam Deck and they've released an OLED version of it like three weeks later, right? Yeah, I think this is what they call Sod's Law, if I'm honest. So it feels like, I was going to say Steam, but Valve looked at Nintendo's playbook and gone, yes. So they did the Steam Deck. It's a lot like a Switch in many ways. And then obviously they've now done the Steam Deck OLED version, which is exactly what Nintendo did. Um, I'm amazed Nintendo did not release more Switches, I must confess. You know, different variants. But like, this looks great. This, I think the, the Steam Deck looks really good. And the OLED one is the it's the next obvious thing for them to do. And it feels like they've done a bit more than that. They've done the battery, the process is a bit different. Uh, it runs at a higher refresh rate. So it's a good all-round incremental upgrade, I think. Yeah, I think my takeaway from this is if you've got a Steam Deck, you don't need to go out and upgrade. You're not you're not really missing anything. Of course, OLEDs look better, but then it comes with the attendant risk of a bit more burning. If you don't have a Steam Deck yet, I think this is a very solid upgrade. It's a good midlife cycle. It's obvious to do an OLED. You do get brighter screen and all that all that kind of stuff. But I feel no reason to go and buy this. I'll wait for the Steam Deck too, frankly. I've been so impressed with mine. Playing little indie games as much as anything else, but it can handle the big old AAA titles from a couple of years back. I've been playing Dome Keeper a little bit on mine. I got to say, it was on sale for six quid or something like that, and that's just great fun. It's like a roguelike: go out, find minerals, craft them, and stop the bad guys trying to break into your dome. Lots of fun, exactly what we want for sort of fifteen twenty minutes play. And the thing that makes it great on the Steam Deck is, like the Switch, I can click the button on top, it switches off, I turn it back on, and I'm right back where I left off, pretty much. And that's really good, a really powerful thing. So I'm really pleased to see them updating the hardware and sort of really committing to it. Yeah. So for me. A big part of why I've got the Steam Deck is more so I can use it down here in my shed, take up the house and play with it and plug it in to a bigger screen. I'm impressed with what Steam have done here. Look, they've price dropped the basic LCD model. They've kept the other LCD models around, but only for what looks like a short period while they sell out the stocks. And so they're going to have a base level LCD and then they're going to get OLEDs as the two higher end models. I think that's a great way of doing it. They're not doing an Apple where they're keeping things around forever. Um, interestingly, these new uh, Steam Decks also have Wi-Fi 6E, which really does seem to be appearing in in a lot of places a lot quicker than I probably had anticipated. Um, I think this looks great and I love what they've done. You can get the new Steam Deck comes with an orange power button and things. And I just, I think they've done a great job of just refining the design a little bit. So it's fantastic, but I don't think I would benefit from this upgrade and i'm comfortable with what i bought you know i bought i think i got the terabyte model for 480 pounds which i'm quite comfortable with yep it's fine it's great advice if you don't have one think about it it's great uh, moving yeah, on if you haven't got one and you were gonna get one yeah now uh, that was uh, the time yeah christmas is coming up for the gaming partner or friend in your life this could be a good shout and christmas present for them uh moving on i just very quickly want to touch on modern warfare 3 i said i played the beta i had a bit of good news in my own development the last week so i thought i'd treat myself when i bought myself call of duty it cost me 70 pounds on the playstation 3 the single player campaign i touched on i think i mentioned it last week anyway it's dreadful it's truly dreadful there are eight missions in it four of them are basically just recycled call of duty warzone maps which is the free thing that's going to go live all the mechanics of warzone are in there and if you buy call of duty for a single player thing don't buy it for that yeah, uh, I've heard this corroborated in my office where I work. Uh, the, the, the team there was saying exactly the same thing. So this isn't really on my list, I must confess. No, don't get it. And then just as an aside, 
they've been quite inventive for the bigger cheating thing, particularly in Warzone. They've had some interesting sort of anti-cheat mechanics over the last few iterations. They've got a real problem with cheating online in this game. That if they spot you're a cheater in some way, they will take your parachute away when your character's landing and just make you splat onto the floor. So you'll fall from 10,000 feet and just die. That'll be the end of it. You won't realise what's happening, except you know you're cheating and you're just going to die. If it hasn't picked you up, but then you enable your cheats later, the next time you jump to go over a wall or something, it will launch you 10,000 feet into the air and then you'll splat and die. I just quite like that as a means of targeting cheaters. Yeah, no, I think it's a good idea. Do it in a good way. Like, genius. So I'm, I'm disappointed. I think I've fallen off the whole cod wagon i enjoy a single player campaign i've always liked that kind of shooter where you've got to get from a to b and get through sort of scenarios i i can't explain why i like it i do i'm not really a fan of the multiplayer thing it's just i'm just no good at it and i'm quite happy just in my own little world reasonable don't buy it then uh moving on and i thought this one would appeal to you i sent you in the week i know that as we've talked about peter molyneux before what a genius he was in the early days of computing for games like magic carpet and black and white and all these but one of his other ones was a game called dungeon keeper and i know you played dungeon keeper back in the day and there's a an effort to keep it alive with a, a, a vaguely open source release of dungeon keeper yeah so you need to own a copy of the game and i've got this on gog i bought it a while ago so i think i can download that and then use this open source version and basically they've done a 4k variant of it fantastic i just wish it would run on the mac and i wouldn't need to go into windows but what a cool game i love it. i love the idea of this because recently i've been going back and playing warcraft 2 as well if you remember that tides of darkness hasn't aged well but it's such a cool game it's just nice to have a, for me just to remember some of the games i really fondly had when i was a child it may be that this will work in the game porting toolkit and run on your Mac. Yeah, that's true. That is still quite a faff to do. But yeah, maybe it's one I could try out. There is a, and if you remind me, Chris, I'll put a link in the show notes to it, Andrew Tsai, who's been doing a lot of the YouTube investigation at this. If you also own Crossover Office, there's a much easier way of enabling game porting toolkit. So rather than faffing in terminal and all the rest of it, it's a two or three click install to get game porting toolkit up and running via crossover office of course that's another amount of money but you could try the demo first and see if you liked it and the money that if you do buy it to make the game porting toolkit a bit easier for it to use actually goes back into the wine project which downstreams to things like your steam deck and, and good emulation and, and uh, on linux really so uh, i think it's it's a worthy thing that crossover do for a long time they were the only ones waving the flag for office on the mac uh, i have bought it in the past not a, they're not a, an advertiser uh, but yeah very good yeah, I'm amazed Apple haven't taken some of the like the scripts people are putting together to make it even easier for hobbyists. And that way you would get more people getting behind it, get some more adoption there. Yeah, fair. What's next? Uh, next, just very briefly, apparently we're going to get a GTA 6 trailer coming soon. So I've just put a link to the article. Um, they've announced it's coming. Apparently it's 25 years since GTA 1 came out, which... Feels like a long time ago now. So um, I just thought I'd put that in there once the trailer drops. I'm keen to see it. I've not really played GTA 5 much. It is an amazing feat, I think, the world they've engineered in it. Sometimes I find it a bit too big and a bit too multiplayer for me, but I'm curious to see what they're going to do with 6. If it's got a good solo campaign, I would be interested in it. I'm not sure how much I liked 5, the way you swapped characters. I quite like that you end up... You know what I mean? You have one person, you build that person up. I don't need a big multi world so curious to see what they're going to do and how, how good it's going to look because they're normally very good at making a very big game look amazing so yeah it's going to be interesting 
Yeah, GTA 5 crossed from the PlayStation 4, possibly the PlayStation 3 area era, and then to the 4, and then, you know, with a patch to the 5. So the game has been around a long time, and GTA Online, I understand, people have spent a lot of money on GTA Online playing that. So I think they've got a bit of a problem, the online side of it. Not that the single-player game wasn't successful. I played it certainly on the 3, definitely on the 4. I haven't touched it on the 5. And it was a great single-player game. I didn't mind the switching characters. I quite liked the expansive storytelling. As an open-world game goes, it was really good. So I'm vaguely excited to see GTA 6. It was getting a little bit too violent and nasty for me. Even as somebody who plays Call of Duty, it was getting a bit too violent and nasty for me. So I'll see how it goes. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was quite good. I did play a little bit of 5 when it came out on the PlayStation 3. I've touched on it on the PlayStation 5 just to see what the graphics looked like. I thought it looked good. But I just felt it was a younger person's game for me, so I haven't really played it very much. But no, just just interested to see what they do with six. Because I played a lot of Grand Theft Auto games over the years, and have generally enjoyed them. So yeah, just keep an eye on it. Uh, I, I've also put a link in to GT Seven, so Grand Turismo Seven. There's been a big spec, what they called Spec Two update, just come out, and I'm just still amazed. I know I spent seventy pounds on this game; it's a lot of money. But here I am, eighteen months later. I'm going to say, and they're still pumping out more cars and. Um, more tracks and they've slightly tweaked some of the mechanics of how you get into everything and um, they've added some extra menus in what a great update for a game like i said i paid for once uh, i'm amazed to keep adding all these things to it but it must be working people must be buying extra credits and, and keeping it afloat so yeah just thought I'd, I'd pop that in there and it still looks fantastic fair enough i've got no comment on Gran Turismo. i haven't fired it up in ages should we do a very quick main show yeah i don't think we've got too much in this one it's a bit ai focused this time around well, it's two things, isn't it? Yeah, that, so we've, there's a, a rumour come out that um, iOS 18 is going to be its most ambitious and compelling in years. And basically what is under the scenes of this, is, and it sounds more like a wish list than actual knowledge from Mark Gurman, this one. That there's going to be a lot more generative AI within iOS 18 than there has been so far. And I don't think that's going to be a surprise to anyone that they're going to incorporate whatever in-house learning they've got and make it a bit more obvious in the operating system as Google have done in their current version of the US. Yeah, and obviously Microsoft are doing this on all of their suite of products with what they're calling co-pilots. So I'm not surprised Apple are going down the AI avenue. I think if they didn't, it'd be a little tone deaf to what's going on in the room. Interesting they see this. I'm just sorry, I'm just going to scroll up for the quote, the most ambitious and compelling update in years. I mean, obviously after this year, it's it's been a bit of a flat update, I think, to be honest. There's not masses in there. I think I've said this year that TBOS was probably the most interesting update because they've actually done quite a, a lot to it. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with and it's a new, what are they going to do and how are they going to badge their AI services, their AI abilities to obviously maintain their privacy stance. So uh, it's interesting. Um, I wonder, though, I, I don't want this to be too ambitious and we end up with flaky software because... I think we. I know we've had lots of minor bugs, but on the whole, the quality of the OS is fairly good. For the amount the amount they're doing every year, I think it's fairly good. Fairly, I'd 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 give them a six out of ten this year. I think previous releases have been better. Come the end of it, if you think of HeatGate, AntennaGate, ProcessorGate, shipping the wrong software, all this kind of stuff, I think I'd be holding their fingers to the fire a little bit more than you are on that. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. To be fair. I don't mind a pause and update and make things solid. 
At the same time, I don't think next year's phone is going to be very exciting because we've had the USB-C shift and we've had the you know improvements to Dynamic Island and we've had a big processor bump and we've had a big camera bump, which will get a camera bump again. They need something to make it interesting and if they can push the software to sell new versions of the phones because it does some AI things slightly better than the iPhone 15 does, that's good, maybe. But they, it's got to be carefully thought in. So far, they must be using more AI. But as we've said a couple of times, all they do at the moment is defer your jumper a little bit. So we need we need the folding phone next year. That's what we need. I don't think it's going to be next year. <laughs> I kind of agree with you, but no, it's just going to be interesting to see what they do. I'm kind of like you. I'd be happy if they skipped major updates next year and just kept us on the point updates that we're getting because they're doing it now they're, they're releasing good point updates with with new features in do we need a big new version every year you know why wouldn't they move that maybe to every two years and just do lots of nice regular updates keep, keep everything moving forwards that'd be my preference i'll tell you why because it's marketing and you can put all those bullet points in a slide and then you and i can go through the quarterly figures after it's released and go look at the huge bump they had in iphone sales yeah you're right Damn my cynicism. Do you want to tell us about another possibly cool AI gadget? Yeah, so I'm mixed on this one. So Humane, which is started up by two engineers that were previously at Apple. I hate their domain name because it's it's got three dots in it. So it's like H-U-M-A, I think, dot N-E. You know, they've done Humane, but separate by dots. And if you go to humane.com, it just goes nowhere. So it's a bit bizarre. Anyway, a company called Humane, set by a couple of Apple engineers. I like they're doing something different, tick. I'm not sure how practical this is. So they've released a device called the AI Pin. It looks a bit like a, and I'm not a Trekkie, a Star Wars, a Star Wars, a Star Trek communicator that you pin onto yourself. And by pin, basically, you put it on your top, but on the other side of your top, you have a magnet and it holds it all in place. So looks cool. It looks a bit like a mini trackpad, I guess, is one way of describing it. It's got a camera in it. It's got a light on the top and it's got a, I'm guessing, a beam, a projector beam that can project onto your hand and, and give you a bit of an interface. And the way you use this device is you, you tap it and then you talk to it. So you go play play me some music you know it doesn't listen all the time you have to you know tell it you with intent that you want it to do something you then talk to it and you can use it with the tidal music service you can use it i believe with microsoft services you it comes with a phone number so it's like a phone in essence you can text people from it it will interrogate your text and, and use ai i kind of like the concept but it looks more of a companion to a phone like a watch than a replacement for your phone because it's got this camera on it. But how would you know if you've actually got your friend's head in the picture for the camera, if you're taking a, a photo of somebody? It just seemed a bit odd and they were showing how they've taken photos. You can take video with it. And so the way it works, like I say, you tap it, you can go, you know, phone rod and then it will dial rod and you can have a conversation and it creates apparently like a sound bubble in front of you and it can be loud and it can be immersive. You can use it with headphones as well. And it, it's got a battery inside it. It's a bit like AirPods in a way. It's got a battery inside it. You can put an extra battery on it and you can put it in a case and it will charge up and that's got a battery in it. So it seems quite simple on the outset. But I would imagine after a little while when you are standing in a shop and you just want to look something up on the internet and you're trying to talk to this thing and it can't find the thing that you want it to say to price check for you. Maybe it can't find the new Richard Osman book. And it... it I don't know where you go with it when you get frustrated by talking to it because you can't then interface 
in any other way. I haven't seen anything as well. Like, has it got an app on your iPhone? Like, are they expecting you to replace your iPhone or have a companion app with it? Because how do you get all your photos off it? How do you do all of that? How do you know what, what data it's got on you? So I think it's interesting, but I struggle to see where it's going to work. So they're retailing for about $700 in the States. And then you've got to buy a $24 a month contract with T-Mobile, which is your mobile phone agreement. And I'm amazed Apple have never done this and gone buy your your phone contract through Apple, have an Apple contract, and then they back it off to maybe a partner. I'm just amazed they've never done that. So I get where they're going with it, but I just I just struggle to see it's going to get any traction. I think some of the tech is cool. The way it projects stuff on your hands, that's pretty neat. It's quite nice. You've got that there and you can do various gestures to go next track, previous track, you know, pause, etc. But I just imagine it's going to be frustrating as hell when the when the device doesn't do what you want because your key way of interacting with it is by shouting at the thing rather than actually, do you know what? The voice assistant's not working. I just want to pick up my device and tap away. Also, I'm not a big fan of talking to things because I might be listening to some music. I don't want to interrupt my music whilst I'm texting somebody. I want to keep the track going in my headphones, for example. Or I'm on a carriage and I don't want to be shouting out. I want to, you know, tell it to play music or do something without having to speak loudly I don't, I don't know so i am mixed on it i think there's some very clever engineering in here that you know the interplay of software and hardware and they've obviously made a product and got it out to market but i just struggle to see how it's going to gain any traction yeah this device mystifies me for a whole bunch of reasons most of which you've covered there the the design of it is interesting it's interesting you took the star trek sort of analog there and you think how much mobile phones were actually influenced by star trek you know captain kirk flipping his communicator open absolutely served as motorola star and things like that for the way mobile phones would become so maybe this is them looking at a later generation of star trek the next generation in this case and their comms badges to do this but in star trek it's just a communicator it's not also trying to be the thing you listen to music on give you mapping directions You'd know who's calling you because you'd hear their voice. It doesn't need to announce that particularly on your hand that Bethany is calling, as it says in the screenshot in the article. I don't like the fact this relies on slightly vaguely multiple AI models to make it work. Might be ChatGPT, might be Microsoft, might be another OpenAI-based thing. That's a bit vague for me. Where's that data going? Who's using it? All that kind of stuff. I don't like the fact that there's no apps other than the ones they've decided you get to use. So who uses Tidal Music? About six people. They see that as a selling point in the video. There's no apps. The video is a bit weird because it's the two founders doing the announcement. And it just felt a bit odd. They, It probably would have landed better if the person introducing it was a bit more enthusiastic. Whereas actually the person introducing it He's you know, one of the key key designers. He's worked on loads of Apple products. But yet, he's just not that kind of enthusiastic person. That's not his demeanour. So it, it just seemed odd who they chose for it to do it. I, I like they're doing something different. I just struggle to see where it's going to go. But yeah, interesting. Part of me liked the concept of it. Like if it had the same number as my iPhone and I didn't have to pay another contract. Because then actually, do you know what? Sometimes I do just want to leave my phone at home but I just want to be contactable. I don't have an Apple Watch. But would I take it in that scenario? I don't know. 
I think it's too expensive to charge a monthly cost for this as well as your phone. You're not going to doom scroll Twitter on this, which I guess is probably a good thing given the state of Twitter. But at the same time, if you're just sat on a train with this thing in, spod- in spotty mobile contact, it's useless. You can't sit and play threes or slay the spire. You can't, you know, check with what your friends on Facebook have been doing if that's the kinds of things you want to do. If you want to have a quick video call with someone, it's useless for that. So this is very much a supplemental device to a mobile phone or a laptop or an iPad or, or something like that. And this, to me, I get, I understand, rather, the purity of what it is they're trying to do. It's a limited set of highly curated apps, sounds like the Apple Playbook, actually, doesn't it? Where what we've said is said no to a bunch of things. We're taking the screen away from you. We're we're putting you back in touch with what matters about the communication rather than the, the functionality and the nuts and bolts of actually doing it and seeing it. But I think we've moved on. Devices like this aren't the answer. Google Glass, to me, was closer to this, where you could see a, a, an augmented reality view of who you were talking to in the glasses without interrupting those around you. And you touched on a really important thing there. It's a bit creepy. There's a camera on this and it flashes to say it's on it. But is it recording? Isn't it recording? Is that data forming part of the large language model? Where does that go? And there's been a bit of a push in the market recently for sort of always on life recording. If you watch Black Books, this is sort of certainly something that's in a Black Books episode as well as just rewind 30 minutes and show me that you're not a security problem for us. And you sort of broadcast that to the security desk when you walk in. And this kind of thing isn't that but you could see having these little devices about your person where you would be live streaming or life recording all the time and you want to go back and remember the fact that you're going to have a date in six weeks and you'd set that up then and you could do it there's, there's a whole bunch of unanswered questions for this but fundamentally this isn't a replacement for a mobile phone this is a an augment to it and i don't think what they're proposing here is sticky enough to replace that and i think it'll fail hard yeah, I agree. I think if it worked with Apple services, which will never happen unless Apple make it, I'd be more interested because what would be compelling there is, oh, what, could I just take this when I go out for dinner? And then I wouldn't be tempted to pick up my phone or do anything on my phone. And I want to escape, but I still need to be contactable. That, that's the benefit. But that's what the Apple Watch does. It does. And then how'd you pay for your dinner with it? Yeah, that's a fair point. How Rubbish. Do I, how, how do I have my car door? Exactly. I. I think we've said all that needs to be said, really. It is an interesting device. I'd encourage people to watch the video or at least to read the, Ver- the linked Verge article just to get a feel for it. It may appeal to somebody. You know, you don't want to walk out with something big in your pocket, maybe, but I think we've said what needs to be said. Uh, the video is good, like the way they walk you through the product. I thought they did a good job. I just thought they had the wrong people doing it. And I get it's the founders, but that was my only point. Fair enough. A very quick app of the week. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned this one before. I'm beginning to think my recommendations may be coming around again. If you ever need to FTP uh, or send files around, um, you can do that with the built-in Finder on the Mac. Struggle a bit on your iPad, I think. But um, there's an app called Cyberduck. It's free. You can get it on the App Store. You can download it directly from them. It works exactly as as described. You can SFTP. You can FTP. What you can also do with it, because it's properly written, is you ha- if you have SSH requirements to SSH into a server or something, you can actually use the SSH part of that to get the files on and off the device too. And that's super useful. So I think it's a really good app. It's very well written. It's very Mac-like. bit like, was it Panic Transmit used to be back in the day for that kind of thing? Not quite as as spot on as that, but you had to pay quite a lot for Transmit. This is just a very well written app that I think is worth looking at if you've got any requirements for that very specific set of circumstances. Yeah, that's fair enough. It looks good. Transmit is still going, but yeah, there is a $45 license cost to buy, which isn't too bad, but it is a great app. But uh, no, this looks good. And like you say, it's, it's free. You can't go wrong. Yep. 
No complaints about it at all. Thing yeah. of the week. Thing of the week is actually an app this week. Um, I heard about this on a podcast. And I thought, actually, this app sounds quite good. I haven't subscribed to it yet, but I was tempted. So it's called Up Ahead. And basically, it's just, just for counting down how many days to your son's birthday, how many days till Christmas, how many days till anniversary, that, that kind of thing. It's very simple, but actually does it in quite a nice way because my son is always going, how many days to my birthday, Dad? And I'm like, how many days in November? And I'm trying to work it out. So I just thought it was a nice, simple, very simple app. Um, and they do a lifetime license which is only 30 pounds or it's 10 pounds a year so it's not a ridiculously expensive app and it's just quite nicely done so that's my my thing of the week fair enough my kids love this kind of thing they're forever counting down to a marvel movie coming out or whatever it is some event upcoming so even as they get older they're going to maintain that but i don't think they pay for whatever it is they use yeah i just just thought it was a nice app like saying nicely done so that's it for this week i think we can call that a show it's a show. So if anybody wants to get in contact, Rod is at g5maniac at maston.scott. I am at underscore cjp at maston.social. Or you can drop us an email at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. Cheers, Rod. Bye.